You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. It's Christmas in September. Can you feel it? Come on. So good. It literally is at Costco. It's crazy. Have you guys been there? It's too soon, too soon. Um, It's actually kind of been refreshing to read and study the birth of Christ not in Christmas season because, you know, you can't drive anywhere without seeing a manger scene or hearing, Mary, did you know, or whatever, you know. Um, The thing is, like, all that is so good, and I love it. And again, I think some of the Christmas songs have some of the best theological written lyrics of any songs, Um, but it can also be distracting because it can put in your mind, oh, this is what it looked like, oh, this is what it is, this is what it's supposed to be, you know, that kind of thing. For Matthew, in our series, as we're walking through it, he's not thinking Christmas, he's not thinking lights on a tree and all this, and manger scenes, whatever, this is not just a manger scene for Matthew. Remember what he just finished up, he just finished up recording all the generations leading up to Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit and his brilliant writing, hiding a bunch of Easter eggs in there, he's setting out to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ. That this Jesus that some people hated, some people discounted, some people had no idea about him, this was the long-awaited Messiah. And we saw Matthew in the genealogy, we saw him intentionally include the outsiders, the ones who should not have been included because he should not have been included as a disciple. But that's what Jesus does, right? He includes the ones who are sick, not just the healthy. He came for the sinner, not just the righteous. And that's evident in the genealogy. And if you remember his use last week of the number 14, which was the numerical value for the name of David, which is just so cool, Meaning Matthew wanted to get across that this was the long-awaited Messiah who would be the king promised through the line of David to rule forever. And each generation had 14 names of fathers who led their successors. I want to read you the last section of the genealogy as we, we kick off today. And you'll notice there's a glaring omission from this list. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And after the deportation of Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abid, and Abid the father of Elikim, and Elikim, I don't know how to say these things by the way, the father of Azor, the Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So if you count those up, you'll see Jacob was the 12th head of household name in that list. And Jesus, being the one who's born, is the 14th name in that list, meaning ending the genealogy and beginning the new one, which we talked about next week or last week, which was really cool. But there's a glaring omission. Who is the 13th father? It should have been Joseph. Joseph was in line to be that 13th father to then get the 14th of Jesus, but Joseph was the husband of Mary whom Jesus was born. So there is a glaring omission. The question needs to be asked, who was the father of Jesus? And before all, excuse me, before all this is written down, it was just years and years and years 
of Joseph, probably getting the exact same question all the time. But how is Jesus not your baby? Or how is Mary not pregnant by another man? You can imagine his response. Well, this is the Christ, born of the Spirit through a virgin to fulfill the scriptures, right? Some people might be like, oh, that makes sense. Most people would be like, no, I don't think so, (laughs) right? Unless they believed. Well, Matthew, he doesn't want his followers to just make this stuff up. He's going to document it. So now he's going in the trajectory of Matthew's gospel. He says, I just told you the line. Now I'm going to tell you who the father was. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. For the reader and the hearer, the question is answered. Who was the father of Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Case closed. No more questions, Your Honor, right? Like that, you can walk away with that. Like what, what kind of claim is that? Who says that? Now remember, Matthew is writing this years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So his audience maybe knew Jesus or at least knew about Jesus of Nazareth who some say was the Christ, but there were also, you have to think of the time period, right? There were many belief systems represented here. In the, remember, Jerusalem was just a small blip on the map that was governed by this mighty Roman empire. The Roman gods with their Greek counterparts and its belief system made up much of the world religion, this kind of Greco-Roman world religion they had. And the concept of God mating with a human was actually not that foreign to the world. Let me just read you a list of Greco-Roman demigods. Achilles, Aeneas, Heracles, or we know him as Hercules, Orion, Orpheus, Perseus, Theseus, all the us's, right? You can like go and read these stories. These were all demigods, those who walk around in human form, but with God-like powers in their very nature. This is their mythology. They all had various stories of gods falling in love with humans or something to that effect and thus producing half God, half humans. So the shocking thing for anyone outside of the Christian faith wouldn't necessarily be reading that this Jesus would be this like God baby. They would maybe be like, oh, is this a new God put in our pantheon? Is that what we should do? But the shocking thing was that this Jesus, born in this way, was not a demigod, but was in fact fully human, who was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and fully the one true God that the Jews believed would save the whole world. Like, that's shocking. The kids are crying. I mean, like, everyone is shocked when they hear and they read this stuff, right? Matthew's claim is so much more than Jesus is just some demigod. This is just some new God deity to put into this. Their God, think about the Jews when they read this, their God was perfect. Their God was holy and undefiled. This was Yahweh. Their God is set apart so much higher, so much greater than any human. Their God would never do what the other so-called gods in the world have been rumored to do. And here, Matthew is putting into writing, talking about a young lady from practically nowhere becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit. 
Well, that's shocking in itself, but a a few things would need to be answered. She would have had to have been a very special woman, and she would have had to have been completely pure and undefiled. Okay, that's like baseline, this is what would have happened. So in this, we're going to turn real quick to the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us a little bit more to go on. Um, You'll see Matthew actually focuses more on Joseph, and Luke focuses on Mary. So this is Luke chapter 1, 26, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So first off, this wasn't just random. God picked her. She is the favored one to be the mother of Christ. And if God says she was special, then she was special. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So far, what the angel told Mary adds up to Matthew's account in his genealogy that this was to fulfill the reigning on the throne of David that we looked at. And now this needs to happen. And I love Mary's response because we can sit here and be like, oh man, how cool that an angel visited her and this is going to be the Messiah and he'll reign like David, but he's perfect. And this is the hope of the world. And I love her response because she's like, that's all really cool and all, but how is this going to happen? Like, how will this be since I am a virgin? Super legitimate question, amen? Right? Like, I, like Mary's like, I don't know, since you're an angel at all, if, like, you've had the talk, you know? Like, <laughs> like where, where babies come from? Like, like, in heaven, anything like a bee or a flower, just, like, anything we can go off of, right? The, like, you can imagine her shock, right? Verse 35 of Luke 1. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Put a pin in that real quick. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now we're going to go back to Matthew in a second, but that's quite the description. That description, in fact, is the same way it's used in God's filling of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Let me read this for you. When all the preparations have been finished, the tabernacle is there, it's ready. It just needed God to do what he was going to do. This is Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 5. Then the cloud, which was God's presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. The word there, overshadowed. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right, this overshadowing language, much like the cloud that covered the tabernacle, meant that something produced within would be completely holy, set apart, untainted by the world of man. What happened with Mary was a holy moment of purity and divine appointment. Matthew does not talk about God falling in love with a human Mary. Right? There's no scandal or some lustful intent. This is not a demigod situation. This is a holy marriage of the most pure God with the purity of the virgin's womb. Right? Luke's gospel's birth 
account focuses a ton on Mary and her part. By going, but going back to Matthew, we look at Joseph and what happens here. Back to verse 18 of Matthew 1. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You know, in Matthew's genealogy, one of his purposes was to link Jesus back to David, and that is through the legal line of Joseph. So for Joseph to have a son, he would actually be the legal heir to the Davidic throne. But as we've seen time and time and time again, humans are, human kings especially are just not great. Kings could do great things, but usually failed a time or two or 70, and at their core were sinners just like anyone else. So what would make this king different for the future of God's people? What would make this kind of going back to that tabernacle feeling, what would make this different in their history? Well, how about he has claimed a kingship through legal heritage as Joseph's stepson, but is actually born of a completely new line of human. A human who is born completely set apart from the curse of all human beings at birth. The curse that began at the garden at the very beginning that is in each and every human born of man in sin. Even though God has redeemed reproduction, redeemed sex through marriage, it is still sinners bringing a sinner into a sin-sick world. But Jesus was born of a perfect, sinless God through the undefiled, pure womb of the Virgin Mary, which creates this incredible phenomenon that some theologians call the Immaculate Conception. The concept that because the angel in Luke's account claimed that the child to be born would be called holy, the Son of God, that even though Mary was born like every other human with a sinful male and a sinful female parent, even her own sinful nature could not affect this child because he was holy. Her undefiled womb, just meant she, didn't, she hadn't slept with anyone, was the safe, untainted transition to the world to begin a whole new line of mankind a new creation generation. And listen, at the end of the day, if that like breaks our brains, it's okay. It's really weird. And it's really hard to like, like figure out. And if we try to logic it out, it's, gonna, it's, it's not going to go well because this is not a scientific quandary, right? This is a theological marvel that we can be in awe and worship at God and what he does when we think he can't do something. And so found in Jesus is what theologians call the incarnation of the Christ. Literally, in the anointed one, Christ incarnate, in flesh. So John, we go to John now. In his telling of the gospel, he goes super heavy into the kind of the deity of this. What does it mean to be the anointed one in flesh? So let me read you this. This is John's Christmas story. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Come on. A few verses later, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he concludes verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Right? Try sciencing John 1 out. <laughs> like, good luck with that, right? 
According to John, the Word who was God, there the whole time, all things made through the Word, this very same Word had become flesh and dwelt with His people. This is the quintessential belief in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus of Nazareth was. Not a human with a God spirit inside of Him, not a demigod, but a hundred percent God, the Word, who is a hundred percent flesh to dwell with his people. And don't worry if that's tough to get our minds around because it literally wasn't until about 300 years, 300 years after Jesus' death at this really cool scene called the Council of Nicaea, that it was agreed upon that Christ was begotten, not made, that he wasn't created, right? That's 300 years. So for 300 years, they were all wrestling through this stuff, right? that he always was and is of the same substance of God the Father, but a different entity of that substance, and that it was theologically legitimate to say he was both fully God and fully man. So if you're confused, we're in good company, right? But back to Joseph, okay? He was not a theologian. Joseph was a carpenter. He made stuff with his hands. He put stuff together and worked with real-life tools and could see when something was right or when something was broken. He loved his betrothed Mary, but he found out she was pregnant. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. If your fiance comes to you and is pregnant, and you did not sleep with her, it's tough to be excited about that announcement. As far as history is recorded, that excuse has not been used for unplanned pregnancy before Joseph was alive, and I don't think it's been legitimized after this story was This is like the dog ate my homework on steroids, right? But as ridiculous as it might have sounded to Joseph, Matthew records that he was a just man. He could have made Mary's life horrific. She was already dealing with incredible embarrassment socially, especially in their culture. Even if Joseph didn't believe her, no one else would. And she wasn't married. There was no real good story out of this. Especially when you put her in that genealogy list again put her up against all the other women in the list, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. We looked at those ladies last week. Like she, in their culture, in their time, and where they were at, she could just be another name representing adultery, sexual immorality, defilement of God's plan for holiness. Just another name on that list for them in that time. But for whatever the reason was, Joseph did not want to make her life harder than it already was as it was Jewish law that in the case of adultery, the man could divorce his wife. He resolved to divorce her quietly. He still cared for her. That quiet is kind of a key word there. Maybe not many people would notice. She could have the baby move on with her life, maybe move out of the town, not be marked as a harlot for the rest of her life. What does the text tell us? Matthew one twenty. But as he considered these things, as he was pondering them, In his heart and his mind, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Like, what a scene. Like, maybe you've had an experience where you've been wrestling with something, going through something, and then you get kind of a word, or or maybe it's a vision, or something or you read it in the text of the word, right? 
But what a scene, Joseph being a just man, he had a plan. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to move forward with what he thought was the best way to do so. But God intervened, which is just rad to pause there, because before Christ was even born, God is so present with his people. God was with Joseph even in this very real-life moment of pain and doubt, and he didn't know, and he, he just had to make a plan and try to go through with it. And the angel charges Joseph with a few things instead. First, to remind him of his lineage, Joseph, son of David. Whether he knew his lineage or not, this was a choice reminder. You may think you are done in this relationship, but this moment in your lineage has been chosen for such a time as this. Don't forget the covenant God made with David. Who you take as a wife will have the same claim as you do being the son of David in your lineage. Also meaning any child within your family has such a claim as well. So secondly, take Mary as your wife. Don't just let her do this on her own, but meld your life with her own and fully invest your life and your reputation with this thing that God is doing. And thirdly, to name the boy Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now this one is a few layers thick. First, the name Jesus. Jesus was actually a common name, right? It was a common name at the time, but what it came from was much more significant. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is actually closer to Joshua. Now, Joshua in Hebrew means the Lord saves, or the Lord who saves. And if you hear Joshua, and you're an educated Jew in the time, there's two Joshuas that come to mind. And if we know our scriptures, there should be two Joshuas that come to mind as soon as you say this. First was the Joshua who took over for Moses. And he led the people of Israel to the promised land. This kind of archetype in our Old Testament Savior was the leader of God's people. Let me read you real fast. Just that account, Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And then verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with with Moses, so I will be with you. Notice this line. I will not leave you or forsake you. Put a pin in that for the very end of Matthew that we'll get to in 17 years. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Okay, so we kind of, most of us know that story, right? The first Joshua is well known, was the one who led the people to the promised land. But there's a second Joshua, and this is Joshua the high priest. This Joshua, years and years later, came back with the Israelites from exile in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem with the remnant. God was going to rebuild Jerusalem with the remnant. This Joshua took on the role of high priest, and here's the scene of his commissioning. This is so rad. This is in Zechariah 6. Take from them silver and gold. This was uh, from Babylon, what they got from Babylon. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, if it's this scene is like dripping with symbolism to the Messiah who would truly one day be that king priest who would rule forever on the throne. This Joshua in Zechariah was never actually crowned a king, but the allusion to this vision here to what one day would come is clear and spectacular. So just keep that in mind. And that's like tiny snapshots. Jews at the time would like know this so well. Like that's, what, that's something that we, it's a disservice to us. We don't know culturally what these names can mean sometimes, but they would know this so well. So in, back to Matthew, in giving the name of this baby boy, Yeshua, brings about visions of the leader of the Israelite people into the promises of God and this king priest who will rule and sanctify the people. Couple that with Matthew, just going through a genealogy, linking this Jesus of Nazareth to Father Abraham and King David. And it's just getting a little bit ridiculous to not believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. So Jesus now, this new Joshua, whose name literally means the Lord saves, is now prophesied to be named this because, what does the angel say? He will save his people from their sins. This namesake fulfilling being the leader of God's people who will be their king and their high priest who will be able to fulfill all roles needed for a people to be sanctified before their God, all centered in one person, and that's a tiny baby, the person of Jesus Christ. Mind-blowing, right? We aren't just talking about another king here. Matthew is writing about the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the long-promised Messiah, the one the old stories alluded to, the one the psalmists all sang about, the ones the prophets spoke would come one day, the one they had been waiting for, and this was him, Jesus. And Matthew chimes in here, and he lets us know on a little secret, his readers and his hearers, what they just read about the angel visiting Joseph and instructing them what to do was to keep the prophecies about Jesus intact. Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So now that's another layer. On top of you shall call him Jesus, which really means Joshua, which really means the Lord saves, which really ultimately leads to the destiny we will have, which is Emmanuel having God with us. Now, he was not actually named Emmanuel, but this was his nature. And Matthew's letting us in on the fulfillment that this baby Jesus was indeed God with his people in the flesh. So what happens next? Verse 24, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So Joseph was shown all this in a dream. And whether he understood the symbolism or not, his response is quite incredible. Now, in terms of childbirth, I, I'm a dad of three, and I get it. Like, when it comes to the concept and process of birthing my children, I literally did nothing, okay? I want to give 100% credit to my wife. My, I think my hardest job was what snacks to pack in my bag because I was going to be so exhausted and so tired. And 
up all night and all that stuff, right? In Luke's account, as we said, he focuses on Mary. Her response to all the vision and what's going to happen is astonishing. She is told that she is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a baby boy, that he will be the Messiah of the Son of God. And this is her response, Luke 138. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's incredible. That's an incredible response, right? I would have had a lot more questions to ask, but again, as we've established, I'm worthless in childbearing. So Joseph's response doesn't get a lot of attention, but he doesn't have a verbal response. In fact, he doesn't say he awoke after that dream. He literally keeps sleeping. <laughs> it's not like the moment in the scene where you woke up and you're like, whoa, God, I got to He just keeps snoring. Classic. But when he gets up the next day with clear conviction of the heart, this is the action he takes. He goes to Mary, who I'm sure is a bit nervous of his reaction. And instead of publicly shaming her and divorcing her, making her to be this harlot of some kind, right, which would put him in the clear and move on with his life, he marries her. Right? I don't know about you, that's, that's quite incredible. Right? He not only takes Mary to be his wife, but he takes on the responsibility and this charge of this baby, raising this baby and being with this pregnant woman for his own. If she were to be publicly humiliated, he would be too right next to her. If rumors and lies were to be said about her promiscuity, he would bear it in love and hold her hand through it. Honestly, not much gets talked about with Joseph, but in a patriarchal society where family status and righteousness is a big deal, Joseph is willing to take all the blame for what is going on with his bride. For there's something bigger at stake here than just their relationships. They too were included in wanting this Messiah to come to save the people from their sins. Joseph, in his flawed, sinful state, actually represents the heart of God the Father here. And as we saw God over and over and over again choose a people in Israel who were, who were actually promiscuous, who were actually idolatrous, and often left him for other idols, and yet God kept his covenant love with his people. Joseph is not God. He's a flawed human. Mary did nothing wrong, but he is acting here like the good father. And also just a super cool note that struck me in studying this. In a patriarchal society, it was understood that the father would often name the child, or the child would almost a lot of times be named after the father. And even though Joseph was not actually the father of Jesus, he was still gifted the opportunity to announce the name of the boy he was to raise like his own. Verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. That's a beautiful, beautiful scene. So the birth of Jesus speaks to the very nature of Emmanuel, God with us. The accusation could always be made that God was never really with us if he wasn't one of us. If he stayed ethereal and only God-like, like we could know him, he was here, but it didn't really feel like it. But to have eyewitness accounts of people who could touch him, smell him, listen to him, feel his very real presence, that is something to behold. And now today for us, we're in an interesting place in the Christian faith because we, like those in the Old Testament, are hearing about something we desperately want but didn't actually live through. Spoiler alert, we in the 21st century, we didn't actually live through Jesus walking on earth, right? We're going off of faith that what we read about in Matthew's gospel and all the scriptures 
is actual truth and from the very word of the very mouth of God himself. Matthew is writing to an audience that some actually lived through the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth and is trying to remind them or convince them that this was not just another crucifixion, right? That was the Christ laying his life down for his people. That was Yeshua saving his people from their sins. And if there was doubt about this, Matthew's about to talk about in next week how this wasn't just a secret story that all the disciples just like texted each other about, right? And they're trying to make this go viral by saying it. This was recognized by other nations. There was a king, a self-appointed king in Herod in their town that this affected greatly. And we'll see next week that he like sought to even kill him. And also God-fearing kings from all over the nations that came from the outside to come and worship him. And Gabe is going to walk us through that next week. But today I want to finish with a few thoughts for today. There's no gospel of Jesus Christ without the incarnation of Christ. Right? So many puzzle pieces have to fall into place if he were to be the Christ, the Messiah. Israelite through Abraham, king through David, born of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, named Yeshua, representing both leader and king priest for the people. And he, have, he would have to be Emmanuel, actually God with us. So to the Jews and to the Gentiles, this could look different to the Jews. They could say, yeah, he's kind of fitting the pieces. The Gentiles are learning this like most of us, right? And today, the question needs to be asked, are we, do we see Jesus as the Christ? Because what that means for us today is that we are a part of this growing narrative. We are included in the great new family of God. If we believe that Jesus is the Christ and through his life, death, and resurrection truly saved us from our sins, we are re-witnessing the most central event in all of human history that happened in a tiny little town of Jerusalem. This gospel story is what the Old Testament has been building up to and what the New Testament spends its whole time talking about the implications. God coming to earth to not only be with his people and share in their life and struggles, but to save his people from their sins. This is the gospel. There is a God who saves. It is our God. And like Matthew is doing, that same God established the church to tell of that good news. That there is a good God who came to be with his people and save them from their sins. To save them not just from their own well-being, but to be part of a new generation, new creation led by Jesus Christ to restore this very world. For us, it looks like Jesus restoring Albany, right? That's like the, the chunk that he's given us of his beautiful world that he wants to restore. But that doesn't just begin with the streets or the trees or whatever. That begins with a restored people. That restores with us, right? We live as a people of Yeshua, the Lord who saves. That is what we proclaim. When we recognize the salvation we've received by grace alone, that we only have grace and that message of love to give out to others. Because the fact of the matter is God saved his people from Egypt. He saved his people from Babylon, from the Romans, from you fill in the blank of all of human history. But the real enemy, if you really track it, has been inside us the whole time. Right, who God really came to save us from is ourselves. Right, Matthew knows this more than anyone. When we realize that we are the sinner, not the righteous, then Jesus becomes our only salvation and our only righteousness. And that reality is the joy of living no longer to slaves of sin, but free in Christ to love as best we can with what we have been given. Can I get an amen? amen. Please. 
The reality of God in the flesh is that Jesus should be so encouraging to us. The God who saves knows what it's like to be human. The God who saves, he knows the struggles. He knows the temptations. He knows the tendencies to turn from God and to desire to be our own God. He knows we need saving. That's what makes passages like this so incredible. This is Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows what you're going through. He knows what your neighbors are going through. In the saving grace he has for all who come to him, he is compassionate and able to sympathize. Now listen, this is a strong statement, but I'm just going to throw it out there. You guys know I love you. If you're not believing Jesus is the Christ, that Yeshua can save you from your sins if you believe your sins have won over you. You're not believing Jesus is the one who saves if you believe your past is too messy. Your relationships are unforgivable. Your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, whatever, could never see and believe in Jesus. If you're believing the lie that if you can't do it, if you can't save yourself, no one can. This is what Jesus does. This is the us we need to be saved from. Right? This is what Jesus came to earth to do, and this is what Emmanuel means. And as his people, this is what we proclaim. So when we respond this, to this baby born in a manger who was Yeshua, the one who saves, and we will know him as Emmanuel, when we respond in song, in prayer, in giving, and receiving communion, this is us unifying under the name of Emmanuel. God is with us. That solves it. It's still messy life, right? But God, the one who saves, is with us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let us worship him today in that.